Welcome to PwC's Tax Reform Readiness Podcast Series. This podcast is an excerpt from PwC's Tax Reform Readiness Webcast Series, held on April 4, 2018, focusing on what Treasury should be doing today in light of federal tax reform. The panelists for the webcast were Ken Kuykendall, a PwC tax partner and our services leader, Krishnan Chandrasekhar, a PwC tax partner focusing on transfer pricing issues, Rebecca Lee, a PwC tax partner focusing on international tax and financial transactions issues, and Eric Cohen, a PwC advisory partner focusing on treasury consulting. This podcast excerpt consists of a discussion among the panelists of the key drivers of tax reform pushing corporate treasurers into action. Take a listen. Why don't we, uh, why don't we move into the second area we want to talk about here, and Rebecca, I'm going to come to you and ask you to talk about some of the tax law changes or start the discussions, particularly um, with a treasurer's lens on them or some of the treasury uh, aspects of these changes that we're seeing. Absolutely. And I'm hopeful that in our audience today, we don't just have our, our seasoned tax professionals, but we do have some folks from uh, the corporate treasury functions joining us. So uh, we'll hit on some of the basic critical changes in tax reform, and then we'll put a little bit of color on them on what's the impact that we see from a treasury function standpoint. So the first one, we've given it a nod earlier in our discussion, is what the so-called toll charge, which is the tax charge on certain earnings that creates an incentive for a mandatory repatriation. And that toll charge is different, taxed at a different rate, depending on whether it's held in cash or cash equivalents or in non-cash earnings. And the impact fundamentally, and many of you have been living with this for years, has been you have a huge amount of trapped earnings offshore. And with the consequence of the toll charge, whichever rate it's taxed at, is now you have a pool of previously taxed earnings that you have flexibility on what you do with it. You can repatriate it all at once. You can dribble it in over time. You can deploy it in different ways in your structure. Um, that's the opportunity. Now, let's get into specific treasury actions that we've seen and we've seen folks focus on. The first one, and I'm knocking on wood that we're almost through this now, are companies navigating through the calculation of the toll charge. So this distinction between cash and cash equivalents and non-cash earnings um, is the product of some very detailed legislation and a host of notices. So there was a lot of line-by-line -line analysis, both from the investment portfolio side, the liability side, figuring out which obligations are permitted to be netted. Um, and I think in many organizations, it's the first time that I've seen my tax professionals get really granular into the portfolio and say, okay, this looks like a cash investment, this investment maybe has attributes of not being, or we have netted liabilities and assets in the same account and we didn't know. Um, so a lot of good working sessions and I think building the camaraderie that then builds into, well, what do we do as our go forward plan? Um, the second is cash forecasting. So let's say you come up with this great plan around repatriation, you actually have to have the ability to bring that cash home. Yeah. And going to your point around working capital, which is a great one, everything looks great on paper until you go jurisdiction by jurisdiction and see how much cash you can actually pull out and still pay your rent, your working capital costs. And depending on your industry, certain industries have regulatory capital that they need to keep deployed overseas. So making sure that you're bringing all the different relevant uh, levers to play to decide on what your cash strategy is. 
Well, and then, I mean, this could be its own, this own webcast, I think, has been in this series. Um, what do you do going forward? Do you pay down debt? Do you engage in M&A activities? And I don't think these all have easy answers. And how much of the capital do you end up keeping overseas for a variety of non-U.S. purposes? Let me, let me hit that. That cash forecasting one mm -hmm. is really, really interesting because typically most companies struggle with this. And it's now more important than ever to be able to revisit, relook at how you're cash forecasting. A lot of companies do more granular, top-down forecasts, but you really need to understand the inflows and outflows that are going through each of the legal entities, each of the bank accounts, in each country, because as tax is designing and determining different strategies, knowing what you have to leave there or what you actually have there as well is critical. Yeah. So that's a real, real um, must-have going forward. Yeah, and one point for those in the audience who may be treasurers who may not have seen the prior webcasts and come back to, there's a perception out there sometimes in the treasury space or in other spaces that because the tax burden is lifted via the mandatory repatriation, that all that cash can come home right now and, and, and it should all be deployed. And go back and watch the prior webcast because there's a lot of limitations and restrictions on the ability to still repatriate that when you think about basis, when you think about how to get PTI back and things like that. So just something to add. It's not as simple as I have this cash. Boy, can we, what do we spend it on? And in that, ho in that same theme of oversimplifications, uh, our next box on the slides is about the concept of now with new foreign earnings, there's no tax to repatriate it back to the U.S. And that's an oversimplification. <laughs> but that being said, the stakes are now different. And we'll turn to it in the next slide, but we have a 21% rate in the US. You have some amount of foreign taxes that you're paying globally, which now the US may not be your highest tax rate globally. You may care about and like the ability to bring back foreign taxes to the US at higher rates than in the US system. We also now have very detailed rules that create, and we can debate whether it's an alternative minimum tax for your offshore investments, um, but the old binary test of either it's these passive types of income and it's subject to tax on a current basis in the U.S. versus it's active types of income and it's fully deferred is now no longer the case. It's the reason why there's so much, I'd say, hesitance on the part of the tax folks to bring the corporate treasurer in early in the process because telling them the effective rate for their offshore cash and their offshore investments and what their overall global rate looks like is is a really de detailed analysis. And as part of that, it ties back to a theme we'll come back to again and again, which is your strategy for funding your global operations. Whether you want an offshore treasury center or not, which used to be a no-brainer, is now a really fundamental question because I may care very much about where I get my interest deductions, where my interest income lands, what effect it has from a local tax standpoint. Um, and it is now a more complicated picture and getting more complicated when we think about the non-U.S. taxes that are relevant to this analysis. So I teased this a little bit. Biggest sort of headline change if you are a mom-and-pop corporation in the U.S. is the decline from the headline rate from 35% to 21%. And this changes in a lot of ways, flips things upside down when you think about your global tax planning. So now, when you used to think about how do I base a road, the U.S., how do I get deductions into the U.S. tax system uh, to erode what used to be a 35% rate? Well, now a 21% rate may not be your highest rate in your global tax group. Mm -hmm. Similarly, there's a transition period of when this rate drops from 35 to 21. So when we think about what folks have been prioritized, 
clients who are tax and treasury joined at the hip, they've been prioritizing what are the transactions that I want to consider about accelerating one-time deductions into the pre-rate drop period because a deduction at a 35% rate is worth a lot more than at a 21% rate regardless of any of the other tax changes. Um, another impact from that lower rate is now thinking about after-tax returns. So if you had a big investment portfolio at the U.S. subject to a 35% rate, your after-tax return is going to be diminished versus if you put it somewhere else and were able to earn, you know, subject to a lower tax rate. Um, so it, it has all of these knock-on implications, really putting a premium on doing after-tax modeling for your rate of return on, say, your liquidity and your cash flow, rather than doing pre-tax modeling, which candidly is sometimes what the treasurers do. Yeah, and the, the, the treasurers are, are sort of, well, let me see how this is going to evolve right now. And that's the kind of wait and see, and it's at that stage now where it's going to start to happen. So two other items to quickly hit. Yep. The first is, we talked about it earlier, and so I'll make it plain, there's now a rule that allows you to expend 100% of your capital investments in certain circumstances. Um, and that becomes really important when we start thinking about capital investments within the treasury space. Uh, and oftentimes, and when we hit on notional pooling later in our discussion, there's always been a build versus outsource question for treasury technology, treasury services. How much of this do you build to suit so you can have internal technology that does everything you want it to do versus where do you get more bang for your buck for example, hiring a bank and doing some kind of notional pooling or outsourcing and having them do pay on behalf of or other services. This incentive from a tax perspective to make capital investments begs some interesting questions around, do you upgrade your own technology? Do you insource some previously outsourced tasks? Would you be happier if you had your own personnel doing it, talking about that headcount management versus technology? Um, and the last one, and I don't want to give it short shrift, but we've touched on it a couple times, is the limitation on the business interest deduction, uh, which is basically going to be limited to 30% of your earnings. And there's a mechanical test of whether it's EBITDA or EBIT, depending on uh, before depreciation and amortization versus after, which makes it a tighter ratchet on a prospective basis. What non-tax folks should take away from this changed business interest deduction is that raising interest or raising debt in the U.S. may not be as attractive as it was previously. Um, many corporations have always had the model of we lever all of our external debt in the U.S. and then we have intercompany loans to push it where it needs to go in the global group. That model may come under some additional pressure with the change in tax law. Um, not to mention there are forces, God forbid, beyond tax that are putting pressure on is the U.S. the right market to borrow in? In a world of rising interest expense, how much leverage do you want overall in your structure, particularly as that may be funding lower rate investments in your portfolio? Um, so looking at this again with an after-tax lens of my deductions in a 21% rate environment may be less valuable. There may be a cap on those deductions. I may have an incentive now to either lower my debt capacity entirely or borrow in other parts of the structure. Yeah, and to your point, that's the reason this came up in the webcast as being one of the uses of the repatriated cash that people were looking at. I mean, beyond everything you just described and hitting the first point, the simple fact is interest deductions used to generate a 35% benefit in the U.S. Going forward, even without the non-deductibility component, it's 21%. Changes the dynamic completely. And I know you guys are going to get into an example with that later. 
All right, so you've gone through the domestic changes. We talked about some of the repatent cash changes. Chris, I want to come to you. There were a lot of changes in tax laws that related to cross-border transactions directly impacting the area you're in in the transfer pricing space. Again, you want to take a walk through those with maybe a lens from a Treasury perspective? Sure, yeah, thanks, Ken. So, you know, the the elements noted in the slide here, you know, as a treasurer, you might look at the labels and, and kind of pause a little bit and say, hey, why are we talking about some of these items? And I'll give you the quick plain English version of each of these rows and then maybe step back and talk about direct kind of transfer pricing considerations around what we're seeing uh, today. Uh, first point, foreign derived intangible income. Now, this is uh, a new concept in, in the regime, but one takeaway is don't get misled by the label FDII has nothing to do with true intangibles as we've historically defined it. It's a return over a, a, a mechanical baseline return. And so it can be relevant and it, it comes down to some of the operating model discussions that we've been having and we'll talk about in an example. But that's the reason why we can't dismiss something like FDII because it's, it's not based on the label but um, some, some formulaic determinations. Uh, on, on the Similar, similar concept on, on um, guilty here, it's about, it, there's an impact of the legal entity structure and how you uh, consider the, your liquidity position and your cash position and how that might impact kind of the tax costs. It's kind of the new sub F uh, in, in our regime. Um, and the implication of BEAT from a treasury perspective is, you know, it's a transactional impact. So outbound payments, uh, related party payments is where kind of BEAT comes in. And this is kind of a big deal because if I think about basic blocking and tackling that corporate treasurers do, um, and I think of my my traditional, I don't want to just make this sort of outbound investments where you have a U.S. parented company, but I'll use it as an example. If I have intercompany loans where the U.S. is borrowing from subs and you would say, I'd never do that because I would create a U.S. tax inclusion. Well, sometimes you do it on purpose. Those outbound interest payments are themselves potentially base eroding payments. But that's not the biggest or the su- most surprising thing that comes up for corporate treasurers. One thing that's been really surprising is what about my hedging programs? Sure. What about where I take on all the risk in my U.S. group and then I offload it or I manage the risk by entering into derivatives within my affiliated group? All those are potentially in scope, and that has a hugely disproportionate impact because it almost grosses up the amount of payments that are potentially subject to this base erosion anti-avoidance tax. Yeah. So maybe stepping back from kind of the technicalities of it, if you think about the TP model and what we're seeing, generally you can break it down into two buckets. There's there's a number of transition uh, management issues around each of these principles. And then there's what we'd call the strategic or steady state planning issues. So on the transition, uh, the two biggest issues we are addressing uh, uh, regularly with clients around this is one is around the investment points we were making earlier. So there's a real decision to be made between tax and treasury together around the external investment profile that you had before and whether or not you now have to unwind some of those positions because you were expecting you know, a, a, a reasonable period of time where you were going to be longer on the yield curve. And a lot of treasurers are saying we don't need that investment anymore. And so they're having real discussions about do we unwind positions. And so there's a TP question around who bears the cost of that unwind and where does that go? Um, and, and the existing TP model has an implication for that. There's a consideration of whether this is a one-time event, a significant event such that a different entity in the structure should bear the cost of such an unwind. Uh, so a lot of interesting issues in that transition management. Um, even if you don't unwind, uh, there's a structural issue that you might be leaving with your liquidity structures where deposit rates are going up. Uh, and your investment returns are locked in at lower rates. And so there's a structural mismatch in your returns. And so TP has a, 
you know, you have to really consider from a transfer pricing perspective, does it make sense for the Treasury Center to bear the structural mismatch and have negative float uh, or negative intermediation rates um, on that? So that's, that's what we're seeing a lot on the transition side. Um, I think on the steady state, uh, some of the things we've observed is the theme that we've been hearing here for the most part has been significant reduction in external in offshore liquidity, you know, bringing liquidity back. And so when you think about that, the traditional TP models used to consider these large treasury centers with significant buildup of cash. And that used to be the basis for the treasury centers earning returns that they did. And now if you're going to see a significant change in those balances, does it still make sense for these treasury centers to earn the returns that they used to be making? Um, so that's, that's a big uh, area of discussion. The second piece is foreign jurisdictions were really zoning in on growing structural deposits, which was another issue when you couldn't bring the cash back. Yeah. And there was a lot of controversy around that area. And now if you bring uh, or reduce those deposit balances, that could be another area where you can manage some of this controversy. But now the interesting thing is how do you deal with the transition? You had a certain story to explain that buildup, and now you're saying, okay, we're getting away from it, so how do you manage the controversies mm -hmm. that you're in right now? Um, so those, those are some of the, the primary discussions we've been having. And then the final point, you know, at least in transfer pricing, you can't get away without mentioning the OECD and BEPS. And interestingly, I don't know if, if, if the uh, U.S. FISC was thinking about it or not, but if you step back and look at where the direction is on all of this, we are thinking a lot of treasury centers are going to go back to more intermediation service mm -hmm. provider type models mm -hmm. as opposed to the in-house banks that we had to support uh, for a lot of U.S. parented groups anyway. And so... Uh, each of these trends I've described kind of move us towards saying, okay, the, your liquidity center, your cash pooling center might be more moving towards being a true intermediation center with balanced deposits and draws, flexible dividend policies. And so you might be seeing required changes in the transfer pricing to kind of reflect that change. And you might actually be more consistent with where at least the BEPS work streams thought you needed to go. Because we do have probably a fair amount of people who may not be tax background, we've gone through some rules here and we've sort of articulated the policy rationale and what's out there. But maybe just making a point, there's a lot of uncertainty as mm -hmm. to how these rules are going to play out. Um, and there's a lot of waiting and actually trying to influence what's going on from a regulatory standpoint to understand how some of this stuff comes in scope, what isn't. Um, so I would just encourage people to sort of continue to stay attached to what's going on related to these rules because there's still a lot to be made up. I feel like the frame of the house has been put together, but <laughs> everything else around it is still in process. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you would like further information about this topic, please email the participants whose email addresses can be found in the description of this episode.